Hello, and welcome to another episode of Boundless Body Radio. I'm your host, Casey Ruff, and today we have another amazing guest to introduce to you now. Dr. Karen Zinn is a registered dietitian and a senior lecturer at AUT University in New Zealand. Her research and clinical practice work focuses on the whole food, low carbohydrate, healthy fat, nutritional approach, and its application to metabolic health and sports performance. After spending her career following conventional nutritional wisdom with her practice and research, she had to pivot and has changed her mind and flipped the food pyramid upside down. She is the co-author of three books, which include What the Fat, Fats In, Sugars Out, How to Live the Ultimate Low-Carb, Healthy Fat Lifestyle, and What the Face, How to Look and Feel Good from the Inside Out. With over 25 years of experience, Karen's mission is to change the world and spread the whole food message to improve global health. You can find Dr. Karen Zinn at www.whatthefatbook.com or at www.karenzinn.com. Dr. Karen Zinn, what an absolute honor it is to welcome you to Boundless Body Radio. Thank you very much. Lovely to meet you, Casey. Should I say kia ora from Aotearoa, New Zealand? Oh, interesting. I love that. <laughs> That's interesting that you led with that. I was just thinking, back at the gym that I used to work at, we had these specific treadmills that had a big screen. And I thought it was kind of lame at first, but actually it was really cool. When you were walking, you could choose different places on Earth, and it would like take you on this like kind of virtual hike through um, through all these different places. And, and, and there weren't many different locations. There were some in, in southern Utah, which you just told me, you've spent some time in. So those are kind of cool because those are just in my backyard a few hours <laughs> away. But one of the other places where I could go would be New Zealand. And whether I was doing walks up these hills or just walking around downtown Auckland, oh my goodness, it is absolutely gorgeous down there. It, it is. It is gorgeous. And I must say, uh, you know, hats off to those people who create those technologies that allow you to wander through different countries when you're not actually there and give you a little bit of a taster. So, totally. so now I guess you, you want to, you want to get here. Yeah. Our borders are open now. So come <laughs> great. on in. Oh, great. That sounds awesome. Yeah. I, I don't know what it is about the town Auckland. It just seems like it's got, it's really modern, but it has this like really charming kind of feel at the same time. Yeah, I mean, Auckland is, you, you know, the, the the biggest kind of most populous um, area in, in New Zealand, of course. Um, and it's got lots of amazing things about it. It's the it's the outskirts of Auckland that is most appealing. Um, but I have to say, you know, the South Island, Queenstown, Wanaka, all around that area and the, the north of the North Island, actually there's so many different places in New Zealand that makes it an amazing, an amazing place to live and to visit. Wow, that's amazing. Um, they're just like hidden gems everywhere. That's amazing. Yeah, that seems like it might be worth taking the very long and arduous trip to get down there. <laughs> Absolutely. And then and then because of it, it, it is a long and arduous trip. While you're here, you might as well stay here for a yeah. little while. Yeah, I know a lot of people do that. One of my favorite, yeah. actually, analogies of the ketogenic diet, you know, when somebody is switching over, is to imagine like a long trip that's like that. Like when you're traveling to someplace, you know, like Bali or New Zealand or, you know, Australia or whatever, you're going to have to go through this long trip. And that's going to take several flights, lots of layovers. It's going to be a huge mm -hmm. pain. And you're going to wait in line with a bunch of stinky people. And that part's <laughs> not very pleasant. But once you get to your destination, it's really heavenly and it's amazing. And unlike Bali or New Zealand, you can stay there as long as you like once you get into the kind of ketogenic world. And and I think I've, I found that analogy to be kind of helpful in the beginning when somebody's suffering through the adaptation phases of going on a ketogenic diet. They can be really miserable. That is a really, really good analogy. The light at the end of the tunnel analogy. I like it. I yeah. really like it. I really, I get bummed out when people, you know, bail after it's been like a week or two and they say like, oh, I've got headaches or this is really uncomfortable. I've, I'm craving sugar. And it's like, you were, you were on your last leg to get to New Zealand. You were almost there. You should have just stuck with <laughs> it. Like, like stick with it. It'll yeah. be worth it. Yeah. I yeah and there are things you can do, you know, I, I just, don't, I just don't know if people get symptoms for, for, longer than a week. I'm just not sure that they're doing it properly to be, to be fair. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I think when I was starting this and going down this path and this journey, we did have people that were, you know, taking two weeks, three weeks, really long times to adapt. And I think that was the fault of myself, the coach, like not understanding how to transition somebody through that properly, because you're right. Like maybe somebody will have a bad day or two when they're first getting started now, but it seems to be a lot easier. And I think we've learned a lot. I certainly have learned a lot, um, you know, Absolutely. doing this for the last few years. Well, very interesting. Interesting. You have um, a really cool story. You're actually not from New Zealand, if I understand that correctly. Can you tell us a little bit about your history and how you got interested in health? 
Yeah, correct. So um, I am from South Africa, from from the beautiful Cape Town, and I'll need to sing its praises as much as I sang New Zealand's praises. Cape Town is just a stunner. So I'm a very, very lucky lady to live in two beautiful places in, in the world. Um, I did my uh, my undergraduate study, my my Bachelor of um, Science and Physiology and my dietetics training in Cape Town. And then after that, I, um, I immigrated to New Zealand where I, um, I worked in the winterless north, a place called Whangarei, and um, I worked as a public health dietitian. And I, I was a very, a very loyal dietitian to, uh, to, to the cause. And I guess maybe during, during my day of, of, of study, it was quite different um, to, to the study of today. And I'm a, you know, I'm associate professor at AUT and I teach and I, you know, I know the inquisitive nature of our students these days, but back then I just would just absorb what my lecturers told me and I never questioned anything. There was no reason to question um, the, you know, the guidelines. Why would they possibly be wrong? You know, I'm just being taught them and it made perfect sense to me. So that was kind of my world. Um, then when I came to New Zealand, I worked in public health for um, quite a while. So, so looking at trying to address the, the health problems of the, the north of the North Island, which is rife with type 2 diabetes. So, you know, very interesting, uh, very interesting job there. And then um, at the start of 2000, I moved to Auckland and got my job as an academic. And, um, and then I did my, my master's, my PhD, and kind of long story short, um, that was, you know, 20, 22 years ago. And I, I'm, I'm still there, actually. Um, and while I'm still there, uh, I have very, very different philosophies now to um, to when I started there. So, yeah, I mean, it, it was a it was a bit of a bit of a journey. It was a big journey actually, switching my philosophies from kind of the loyal food pyramid girl to to something which resembled um, turning the food pyramid upside down almost, and and changing my philosophies. And and that was kind of eight nine years ago. And the weird thing is, it almost seems like it almost seems like it's mainstream-ish now. And we we, we wrote some books, um, as you as you mentioned. We we actually got a total of five books. Um, th- that's not totally known because oh, wow. a, a couple weren't weren't really um, were more kind of local. Um, but I almost feel that in this in the in the context of low carb whole food and health i almost feel like we've ridden ridden the wave and it's it's becoming mainstream now which is the whole purpose of what we're trying to do which is pretty awesome but it was um it was a, it was a bit of a rocky journey <laughs> Yeah, Along the way. yeah, it definitely can be, I think, for all of us as we're learning and kind of redirecting as we go. We were fortunate enough to host both um, Dr. Gary and Belinda Fetke not too long ago. And they told me mm-hmm. something that I, I kind of knew, but I guess I didn't really consider how bad it was. He said the South Pacific really is the hotbed of all kinds of metabolic disease and obesity in particular. And I think he said it was like nine out of the top 10 most obese countries are found in the South Pacific. I I, I, I think that's what he was saying. That Either way that's pretty that's pretty challenging and it sounds like you when you first came many many years ago to New Zealand you were already noticing that people were dealing with a lot of obesity and type 2 diabetes oh absolutely I mean you know in a small country like New Zealand um you know when you look at the stats um obesity is the, the third it's the the third um highest obesity rate or third country with the highest obesity rate in, in the world and type 2 diabetes is is very much, um, very much just behind there. We, we're catching up very, very quickly in that space. And um, and it is the, you know, when you look at the demographics, you look at the the ethnicity breakdown. It is the the um, the, the groups like the Maori and Pacific Island the indigenous groups that are disproportionately affected. And you know, there's a reason for that. There's so many different reasons for that. One of the reasons for that is that is that particularly the the Maori people they they don't necessarily um, align with the same way of health delivery um, as, you know, New Zealand European um, people do. So you know, we, we get sick, we go to the doctor um, and we, we get fixed or sometimes we don't get fixed or whatever. But for some of the Indigenous people, there's a, there's a bit of a lack of trust in the Western way of doing things. And, um, you know, you go to the doctor and you've got 15 minutes. I mean, what, what is that even 
what is that about? 15 minutes. What can you do in 15 minutes? And um, as a, like that is um, one of the one of the many, many reasons um, why Indigenous groups can't really get ahead um, is because they, they use different um, philosophical models of health. And we need to really, really change things up if we want to get some traction in terms of reducing inequalities um, and improving the situation. So there's a lot of work to do in the general space, but also um, even more work to do in this kind of um, in indigenous space. And I think that's echoed in in, in different countries in the world, in, in Australia as well. I was just thinking that. It sounds like the same kind of racial inequalities that are happening all over the planet in, in many places, but maybe just for slightly different reasons. You know, mm -hmm. I, here in America, maybe it's, you know, that the African-American community and the black community, you know, we, we've completely lost trust, you know, with, with the public health message here because of the, the horrible history of public health with minorities. And so, you know, maybe it's a slightly yeah. different reason, but um, it sounds like something that's really pervasive around the world. It is. And, you know, even if you don't necessarily agree with it, um, you might say, oh, just come on, just go to the doctor and get yourself some help. It's all it's accessible to everyone. So that's the key. We think it's accessible to everyone. But if if it doesn't align with their philosophies, it's not accessible and they're that's not right. going to, you know, they're not going to take up the opportunities that are that are provided there. So whether it's right or wrong or whether you agree with it or not, that is the reality. We need to work quite differently to to get some good outcomes, yeah. I think. Yeah, I agree. I, I look at somebody like, you know, uh, a Day Fox, um, known as the Black Carnivore here in America, or Dr. Tony Hampton. These people have embraced the low-carbohydrate message, and now they're out sharing it. And they have a different voice than I have. It's, it's very different, you know, if you're mm -hmm. in that community to hear the message from me than it is for them. And so the more people that can help embrace that message for their, you know, community, I think is so helpful. Absolutely. And there's a big drive here at the moment to um, increase the Indigenous workforce, uh, particularly in, in the area of health coaches. So it makes a lot of sense to have, um, to have people going into their own communities, talking to their own people in their own language with their own analogies and philosophies and things, um, and, and getting traction. So I think the whole, to be honest, I think the whole health delivery system is is broken in, well, in, in New Zealand for, say, type 2 diabetes anyway, but potentially in the rest of the world as well. And um, we've been really lucky enough. I've been putting in research grants for, <clears throat> for years and years and years. And, well, since 2016, I've been putting in this research grant about low-carb and diabetes. And it's finally, 2022, it's finally been... Um, granted, so we've just got some money from the government for the Health Research Council to look at the way the delivery of um, services in primary care, so at, at the medical centres, is delivered in the area of prediabetes and type two diabetes. So we're going to be evaluating some some work that we've been doing with with various GPs around the whole kind of uh, low carb space and community facing and supportive initiatives space and we're going to evaluate that and then roll it out to a bigger region and do a big evaluation there compared to the the kind of standard practice and and then see how it goes and hopefully roll it out to as much of New Zealand as um, as that that wants it and these medical centers that we've been working with they've been employing health coaches so everyone gets a, a role you know the doctor has a certain role the health coach has a more hands-on role by you know taking taking the community to the supermarket, doing cooking demonstrations, being responsive to them on text, on call, um, whenever they need to. So I just think everyone's got a role to play, but it's just we're working on an old system to try and fix these new problems. Wow. Wow, that's amazing. I mean, I I very often get very discouraged by how slowly this is moving, but I am starting to hear more and more that things are moving forward just a little bit. Even things like, you know, the American Diabetes Association, I believe it was 2019, for the first time at least acknowledged that low carbohydrate could be a possibility to use, which is all anybody in this world that I know is is asking for. So maybe there's maybe we've turned a corner. Maybe the momentum has gained, you know, so much ground that now it can actually move forward a little faster than it was in the past. You are exactly right. And, um, you know, America does lead the way. And, you know, if, if, if the American um, guidelines or the diabetes guidelines or the diabetes agencies endorsed low carb 
and, and even extreme low carb, so essentially ketogenic diets, as the, the most efficacious way to reduce HbA1c and reduce medication um, in, in, in patients with prediabetes and type 2 diabetes, the rest of the world sits up and listens and goes, oh, oh, okay, well, there must be something to this. And then, you know, other countries around the world suddenly are, are coming around. So now, you know, when I used to do talks for health professionals and communities eight years ago, the first half an hour, you'd have to spend trying to convince them why it was a good idea. And now the talks are about how do we best incorporate this to get the best outcomes? Because it's, like I said, it's it's almost like mainstream. It is adopted as one of um, one of the therapeutic tools to use for those who, who want to and those who embrace it. So we've, I think we have Definitely come a long way, considering, as you say, the, the snail's pace that um, guidelines usually move at. Um, but even just, you know, New Zealand's a small country, and when I get um, clients, so, so I've got a clinical practice as well. When I get clients, I always ask them um, how they how they got to me or, or how they were referred to me. And they go, oh, you know, my, my doctor referred me. Oh, who's your doctor? And they mention the name. And in the old days, I would know all the doctors who would refer a, a, a client to, to me to do low carb, but now I've never heard of these names. So it is definitely, definitely moving at a reasonable pace um, in New Zealand anyway. So it's it's very, very pleasing to see. That's amazing. I, I just, I think back on the statement that you just said, which is like taking people with type two diabetes or prediabetes and reversing the disease or getting them off yeah. of medications. What, 90 Eight percent of doctors that you mentioned that to would be like, "What are you talking about? That is impossible. This is a yeah. chronic disease that you will manage poorly, probably for the rest of your life." Yeah, absolutely. And I think you know, chronic, progressive, debilitating disease, and something that you know the 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 indigenous families just get. This is just something that your families get. It's it's nonsense. And I think using words like. Um, reversal and remission are becoming mainstream words, um, which is which is so good. And people are actually going, oh well, you know, everyone knows the word remission, right? You know, in, in a in a in a cancer context, when you say the word remission, you go, oh, okay, that you know, that's good. So using the word remission in the diabetes context is is really good, and reversal is just absolutely fabulous. And um, and I just think there is there is a people are stopping to go oh okay this is somewhat different to what we thought it was and um, potentially what you know how, how we thought we could best manage this and yeah. it's moving there's traction it's great yeah that is incredible i know he's retired now but all of these things could could have prevented you know dr gary fetke from amputating less toes and less legs and all those terrible terrible complications that come with type 2 diabetes horrible Absolutely. I mean, Gary's story is, uh, is always very interesting, and it's um, it, it's one that's quite sort of uh, close to home for me because um, he was making a whole lot of noise in his in his kind of um, workplace in his in his area, and I think the people that went up against him were the dietitians. So you know, when we first got into this, I was probably one of the the first dietitians to kind of switch and and you know, be, be more kind of embracing of this, um, of this, of this way. And I know, you know, being a conservative dietitian, we very much, um, uh, protection of the patch. So that's the problem with, the, with, with kind of silos, you get trained as a dietitian and you are the only people who can talk about nutrition and can talk about food. Even, you know, the personal trainers are not, not allowed to talk about nutrition. I mean, how ridiculous is that? Wow. Um, the orthopedic surgeons, you're not trained in nutrition. And it's true, you, they're not trained in nutrition, but there is such a thing called upskilling, which was, you know, so so when the dietitians were saying to him, this is not your area, this is, you know, this is our area, and you can't be telling patients that, um, you know, I, I was thinking I, I can I get it from their perspective. They're going, this is our area. Dietitians have never ever been um they've they've I don't think dietitians have ever really been valued. And over the years you can see how they operate. They're constantly trying to create value for for their work. Um and for for whatever reason it just hasn't quite got there. And I think the I do think the dietetic profession needs to sort of not step aside, but morph in terms of what they're able to do. And I think that 
maybe being involved in some of that upskilling and train the trainer and train other people and help other people to deliver a sound message. So rather than going, this is my patch, this is my patch, it's like everyone should be talking about nutrition probably at different levels so that we don't overstep our boundaries. Let us as a profession help the health system move in this positive direction. And oh gosh, if we could only if we could only get there, it would be fabulous. But you know, the fact that we're not there indicates that there's plenty more work to do, which is good. Yeah, that is good. I I love that point. Um, I think that's so valuable to acknowledge that all of us, you know, at different levels can talk about this. We're in this world where you can learn from other places. This is a free podcast. You can access this all over the world. Like this is a great place where you can learn. There's lots of great podcasts out there where I learned a bunch of this stuff. Like you can find good information. Absolutely. And I mean, think about it. The the dietetic service, like the dietitians are in, in short supply. They work in hospitals. They work in private. If you go and see a private dietitian, it will cost you a lot of money. Um, and you might see them once every now and again. If you've got an injury and you go to your physio, you probably see them once a week or maybe even a couple of times a week for a few weeks. What a good avenue to get some health messages in there, some nutrition, some lifestyle, some messages, just with little sound bites. Um, but, oh, no, physios aren't allowed to talk about nutrition because they're not trained in the area. So it just it could be done so much better um, with the dietitian still having a really, really important role, if not more important than what they've got at the moment. Yeah, that's so interesting. I love that point. Okay, I want to talk about how you have been able to make a low-carbohydrate or a ketogenic approach really easy and approachable. Your book definitely makes it so easy to understand, so easy to adapt, and makes it delicious. And, you know, it doesn't have to be this thing that people think of when they think of a really, you know, restrictive, low-carbohydrate diet. I want to talk about that, but before we do, I would love to contrast what your work was like especially work in like public health before you learned about low carbohydrate and ketogenic diets. Can you tell us a little bit about like maybe some frustration that you were feeling or what like the normal was, uh, how you would help people or try to help people and what the success rate was? Mm, I mean, you know, I, my, my world is sort of divided into my academic world and then my practice world. Um, and before that it was public health. So, you know, running programs, delivering programs to, to improve health comes, those sort of things you never really see, um, you know, you, you can't really measure your work um, on a on a kind of um, national scale. If you run a program for 30 people in a rural community, it's like, well, they eat a bit better. You, you don't really know what's going to happen down the track. So that's why working in health promotion is, is so it's so blim and frustrating because you, you kind of don't really know if you're doing any, I mean, you're not doing any harm, but you can't really see what's going on um, long-term in the clinical world. Um, that's when you can really see, and I know people poo poo the whole N equals one, but you know, if you, if you take N equals one and you multiply that by a million, well, you know, you've got a lot of, um, good outcomes there, but the, the interest, the most inter interesting thing for me is that when I was doing, my normal. So I was working with sports teams and with the general population, telling them to eat things like, you know, the, the usual stuff like whole grain breads and cereals. And um, I worked with one of the, one of the uh, national sports team, the, the rugby league sports teams, the Warriors, and they were sponsored by um, Aunt Betty's creamed rice. So canned creamy rice. And they used to literally drink this stuff and I would go yeah yeah you know it's got 80 grams of carbohydrate and 10 grams of protein that you know that's really what what you want to do and gosh looking back I feel almost I'm just horrified um at, at what that actually means for for I mean for, for dental health number one you know all the sugar going on in the teeth and for long-term health but um I'm digressing a little bit in in a in a private practice setting when I would do um, weight loss or, you know, I'd get clients and they want to try and improve, improve their health and I'd tell them to eat whatever, whole grain breads and cereals and, you know, six times a day snacking and all that kind of stuff. Um, when it comes to weight loss, um, you can literally do anything and lose weight. You can go high carb, low carb, vegan carnival, green carb, blue carb, whatever. You, you know, if you can calorie deficit, and I know there's a, an argument around that, but but for the most part, if you are in calorie deficit, you will lose weight. And if you can stick to that, um, then you will maintain weight. Um, and there's good evidence to show that. So from a weight loss perspective, I absolutely used to get successful weight loss doing it the other way. Um, but the massive difference is all the other things 
that you get. So now in my world, weight loss is almost like a pleasant side effect that you get from um, reduced inflammation, from improved wellness, sleeping better, um, feeling better, um, conditions going down, medications dropping, blood pressure dropping. So um, it's a very, very different world. So in the old days, yep, I get success with weight loss and not a whole lot else. Um, Apart from the, you know, LDL cholesterol comes down, we know that's there's a bigger story there. And now the range of positive outcomes that you get on low carb, um, whether it's whether it's moderately low carb or more strict low carb, um, you still get such amazing outcomes that it's like a chalk and cheese de- delivery. And this is one of the reasons why, for the first time, for many many. Uh, doctors, for many uh, general practitioners, for the first time in a lot of their careers, they are getting job satisfaction, right? So instead of going, uh, write out a prescription for this and, you know, go away and come back in three months for the repeat prescription, they're actually going, right, well, let me give a a different service. Um, It's around low carb. They do, you know, do the whole low carb thing, and the client comes back and they go, "Oh my God, doctor, I'm feeling amazing, and my HbA1c's come down, my blood sugar control is beautiful," and the doctor goes, "Oh my God, this is the first time I'm actually feeling good about what I'm doing." So you can, you know, you can see why um, th- this this immediate positive effect in all areas of people's lives is 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 bringing kind of positivity and benefit to not only client uh, not only patients and clients but health professionals as well all around yeah no that's such a great point I, I love that and we hear that story so many times that was certainly my case you know working as a personal trainer and, and I love how you called it like the end of one it's like yeah it you know if I'm giving somebody something and it's not working for them or the other people or the other people or anybody else I work with it's either all these people really suck or my advice is really bad and we have to like <laughs> yeah. reconcile that I do want to point yeah. out real quick though you were working with New Zealand rugby players did they not have any suspicion about somebody from South Africa giving them advice like <laughs> you may have reasoned in there and I that's don't know a good, that's a good point no it was rugby league it was rugby got league it, so um, a different sporting code but um well, you know, there's got to be an element of trust, right? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. I had to just point that out. Okay, so awesome. So tell us, when was it that you actually first came encounter to encounter the, the ketogenic diet the first time? Yeah, so um, probably around eight or nine years ago. So you'd be familiar with um, Professor Tim Noakes from South Africa, right? Of course. So, he, um, so I've had a lot to do with him over the years. So he actually taught me um, exercise science in my, in my undergrad, in my, my dietetics. Wow. I know, it was classic. Um, and, and it was about, probably about, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago now, he was making a lot of noise about um, fluid guidelines for endurance athletes, right? And, right. you know, the guy, you know, the guidelines always, um, you know, 750 mils, uh, you drink 750 mils on the hour, every hour, um, and that will deliver blah, de, blah, de, blah. And the guideline was if you're thirsty, well, you're really dehydrated and that's not good. So, you know, it, it's really too late. And suddenly he was going, he was he was talking about this drink to thirst message, right? And and you know people like me and dietitians around the world are like drink to thirst. My God, it's really too late. He's, what is he talking about? Has he gone? Has he gone crazy? Um, and it was in the context of hyponatremia, where um, ultra endurance um, athletes overdrink um, and they get um, sodium you know, levels that, that are too low in the blood and that can be um, catastrophic, can, can be fatal, and, and it has been. So he was pushing this drink to thirst and work out your own guidelines and get away from the 750 mils on the hour every hour. Like, oh, my God, he's going crazy. And then a couple of years later, the ACSM guidelines changed um, and there was a drink to thirst and there was a um, the onus is now put on the athlete to weigh yourself before and after and it, more intuitively work out what your fluid intake is rather than there's one guideline for everyone. Um, and when that guideline came into play, hyponatremia, you know, pr- almost disappeared. Wow. 
You know, so so someone who makes a noise about something that sounds a bit weird and wonky in the first place, um, but actually if you if you sort of watch it play out, it had a really positive effect. So when he started making noise about low carb and ketogenic diets, um, I you know I was kind of thinking in my head, oh, this is Atkins. We've seen it all before. It's you know we it's it's not good. It puts you in this thing called ketosis which is bad for you and and all the stuff that came around but because it was him making noise I kind of thought hmm there must be something to this because he's a he's a smart cookie you know he's a he's a very very well respected scientist so um that's how I first sort of my ears pricked up um about it and then a colleague of mine at work who um was a co-author in uh, in the book that that um we wrote um was talking to me one day at at AUT and said to me, I want to talk to you about uh about the whole low carb thing. I'm like, oh God, not not you, not you. And I was still trying to process and I was kind of make I was trying to make it go away because it was just against everything that I'd ever, you know, learned and believed and was, you know, was teaching students. And he said, he said to me, this is Professor Grant Scofield, he says to me, so Karen, tell me, uh type two diabetes, um, People with type 2 diabetes have, have got oh, – type 2 diabetes is characterized by insulin resistance, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And at the time, we had just um, we had just picked up a PhD student who was looking at hyperinsulinemia and insulin resistance, Dr. Kasman Crofts. Anyway, so he was exploring this, this science and saying to me, so type 2 diabetes, insulin resistance is the connection. Yep. Um, so insulin resistance is, is kind of when, um, when you're – you know, there's, there's, there's an excess of insulin uh, in the body and it's kind of doing the same job to blood sugar, but it's, you know, it's distributing blood sugar around the body, but it's doing it at a higher level. Um, and you could say that the body is kind of intolerant to carbohydrate because the body's got to work much harder to clear the carbohydrates from the system. I'm going, yeah, 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 yeah. What are you getting at? What's what's the point? Now, so then how come the dietitians prescribe a high carbohydrate diet for people with type 2 diabetes if this is the very thing that they're having problems with processing around their body and that kind of was like a it literally punched me in the stomach I'm like oh there must be a good reason let me let me go and find out and of course I came up with well there's you know you need your healthy whole grains you need your vitamins and minerals and your fiber and your everything you know from your your food groups um and then I thought, no, 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 no. So there's something, there's something not quite right here. And um, when when it all came out that the whole, you know, food group distribution was largely an exercise around a, a, a table um, by a bunch of people many years ago, looking at the RDIs or, or RDAs from America, recommended daily intakes of nutrients. They went, okay, so so the RDI of this of say vitamin B1 is whatever. Where are we going to get that from? Ah, oh, whole grains. You know, so it was a def- it was just like an exercise um, that that covered all the food groups, rather than saying you need all your nutrients, your micronutrients. You can get them from wherever you want, um, pro- provided you get them and provided you get enough fiber. Does it really matter if it's from lots of carbohydrate or a little carbohydrate? So it was at that time where my whole kind of philosophies and thinking pattern changed um and this was sort of november december and i and i went away for my christmas holiday thinking i think i've got to get out of the profession because i'm this is this is literally too much for me like i didn't know what to do with myself um and then i i came back i just tried it out myself came back and then started to to do this in my practice and felt pretty you know anxious the first client that i had that you know, told them to reduce carbohydrate and, you know, to have full fat milk. Um, and then, you know, then you get great outcomes and you realize that this is actually good. It's safe. It's whatever. So um, that, that was the transition. So it's about eight, nine years ago that I got into the space. Um, and to be fair, I don't work in the ketogenic space a lot. Um, I work in the low carb space. So ketogenic, absolutely for, um, for people with, um, certain cancers, particularly brain cancer, um, concussion, migraine, um, epilepsy, uh, for sure. And for those people who want to be more extreme, 
um, and can sustain that longer term. That's fine. And also for athletes at various cycles of their um, of their kind of um, their training strategies and, and whatever. So you'd go ketogenic um, for for certain periods of time. But for most of my clients, I work in the low carb space because I find that you can achieve a lot in the low carb space, great outcomes, and it tends to be more achievable long term. Mm, I, that is such a great point. And I, I, I certainly have made the mistake of throwing that term around a lot in this interview. And we do it all the mm -hmm. time that we, we confuse mm. keto with ketosis. We confuse keto with the ketogenic diet or what the ketogenic diet even is and with low carb. And it's all in the space of, you know, low carb. I, I love I, Dr. Um, Dr. Fetke did the same thing in the introduction where it said low carbohydrate, healthy fat. It's not high fat mm. the way we mm. first said it's healthy fats, including those healthy fats. Absolutely. But we, we, we don't do, I don't think we do a great job distinguishing the different levels. So can you explain a little bit more about the difference between low carb versus ketogenic versus even something like a carnivore or no carb diet? Yeah. So I guess um, we'll start with sort of standard, say American guidelines or New Zealand Ministry of Health guidelines where your, your carbohydrate requirements are between 45 and 65% of your total energy. And that typically can work out to be 250 grams plus. Um, and that's what's kind of recommended. Um, we'll go to the, the one extreme of the ketogenic diet. The ketogenic diet is um, where you take your carbohydrates to below um, sort of 20 or 30 grams um, of, of net carbs per day. That is that is very, very low. And, and typically, if you want to, um, if you're doing very, very strict keto, say for epilepsy, your, your fat percentage is going to be up at like 80%. Um, and that what, what, what that will do is put you in a state of nutritional ketosis. So it will, it will mean that not only is your body using fat as a fuel, but also your brain is now switching from a glucose fuel source to a, um, a ketone fuel source. And of course, um, when, when, when ketones are used by the, the, the brain, there is um, you do get cognitive benefit from that. And that is one of the reasons why um, the ketogenic diet therapeutically is so good for um, conditions where um, fuel utilization in, in the brain um, is, is kind of, there's a question mark around it, right? So something is happening with glucose fuel utilization. And actually by switching to fat or ketone utilization, there's an improvement. Um, nowadays, even for epilepsy, you can do a more modified, they call it a modified Atkins, where you um, you keep the carbs as low, but the fat doesn't necessarily have to be as high, but you still achieve nutritional ketosis. So you've got the one extreme and the other extreme. And then in the middle, um, in the gray middle, um, there's that kind of moderately low and, and low carb space. Typically, you know, everyone's got their own kind of definition. Um, the, the the one sort of definition that's come from the literature from Richard Feynman um, is under 130 grams of carbohydrate per day. That is considered a, a low carb um, diet. Some people say, again, in the literature, when you look at the studies, anything under 45% um, of total energy um, is, is considered low carb, but that could still be, you that know, like still be a lot. Yeah, absolutely. So I don't work with percentages typically in my with my clients. Um, I I sit in that space. It depending on what their goal is. Um, I might say if someone if someone is you know type two di diabetic and they've got a family and they've got you know lots of lots of stuff going on in their life and they're not one of these people who just wants to go keto. Um, I would say you know try and sit between the. The, the 50 and 75 or 50 and 80 grams per day, it's still really low, still low. Yeah. And you might sort of, um, you might sort of go in and out of a, a mild level of ketosis, but that's absolutely fine. And as long as the person is achieving their goal in terms of improving their blood sugar control and losing weight, if they need to lose some weight, then why do they have to go as extreme as keto? Um, I, I don't know. I find that I get a lot of clients come and see me and they go, I've, I've been on the keto diet before and it really worked for me. And then I'd say, well, then what are you doing talking to me? Yeah. What's it? You know? And they go, oh, it's just, it's just a bit extreme. And I, you know, I, I did it really well. It was really awesome for like a month or two. And then I fell off. They just don't know how to moderate. Um, so, so, so that low carb space, I think is really good. I mean, with any, approach that you go and you've got to watch the creep 
you've really got to watch the creep. You've got to watch the creep in, in, in everything, even people who are strict. Yeah. Um, having a check-in with themselves or people or others, health professionals, is is really a good idea for people who can't necessarily, you know, get it under control themselves. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then and then you've got carnival, which is um which is is interesting. So that's like close to no carbohydrate, depending on how you define it. And and again, carnival, some people just say it's it's meat and meat products. Other people say, well, actually it's dairy as well. And then other people say, well, you know, once you once you've sort of done what you need to do, you can sort of bring a little bit of vegetables here and there. It's like, well, that's not the carnival diet. <laughs> that's like the modif- modified carnival diet. So I think everything's kind of creeping. Um, and I really think that people need to find what works for them, um, whether it's, you know, different proportions of meat and vegetables. Um, I, I don't know. All, all I know is that a whole food approach, um, choosing foods that are minimally processed is the most important thing. Protein is incredibly important, and particularly for, you know, over the age of 40, uh, protein becomes more important for, you know, for athletes, for adolescents. Protein is really important. Um, And carbohydrate is about, you know, keeping it in, in, in a spectrum where you need to put it, depending on your goal, and looking at the best quality carbohydrate. And I think if you've got that covered and you really pay attention to, to nutrient density, then, you know, that's, that's the battle one. I mean, I've heard you talk about this in the past where it's like, if you're going for those whole foods, you are probably going to be in that low carbohydrate space anyway. You'd have to like really try hard almost like eating tons of fruit, which even then would be tough because there's so much fiber and things filling up, filling you up that it would be really challenging to be above about 150 grams a day. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Cause there is that whole, you know, if you just eat whole food, well, like, what is the definition of whole food? Well, that's another kind of open up a can of worms. It's, you know, is 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 yogurt whole food? Because it is it is still minimally processed. Well, I mean, I consider it whole food, but then other people wouldn't. You can't really go out into a forest and catch a yogurt. You know, so um, there there is a there is an element of um, of of totally, you know, unprocessed and then minimally processed that gets included in in the brief. Everyone makes up their own rules, but whole grain bread is not whole food because it's a, again it's, a, it's 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 made in a factory. And I think when you go from making making stuff in your kitchen to making stuff in a factory, um, the the food quality and the um, and the level of processing is is different then becomes a different thing. Yeah, that's so interesting. So for me personally, I prefer to stay more on the strict side, although it's interesting. I, I consider myself being on the carnivore diet for the last three and a half years or so. But when you're saying the level of carbohydrate to be in deep ketosis, 20 to 30 grams, I'm probably exceeding that. I mean, I use condiments from time to time. I drink coffee. Sometimes I'll have a beer. Like those things like that, that isn't necessarily carnivore. And that's probably a, a more than 30 grams of carbohydrate for sure. But, but yep. I, I love the approach that you take where it's like, you don't need to be this strict. You can get really good results, include some carbohydrates in the diet and just adjust accordingly based on your needs. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I just getting back to your point there, I do think people who are well adapted and, you know, fat adaptation is this, is this thing that happens over time. We don't know the exact day that it, that it takes place. Um, but we know that some people, um, who are you know metabolically well regulated, have been in ketosis, adapted, you know, have, has have had those mitochondrial um, adaptations for a very long time, can actually get away with staying in ketosis on a higher level of carbohydrate at times. So um, it, it's not a one size fits all. Um, as long as you know what you're doing, why you're doing it, um, you're enjoying doing it, it's working for you, you're achieving your goals, and you are getting your nutrients. You're not doing anything that's harmful. Well then, you know, who cares if it's a carnival or a vegan or a what whatever. Yeah, I love that. I, that's such a great point. And I know we've already kind of talked about this, but I would love to just reiterate, when you're sitting down in front of somebody, there's going to be certain people that you can say, you're going to be in the kind of 130, 150 grams of carbohydrate per day will probably be okay for you versus another group of people where it's like, yeah, you should probably be 50, 60, 70. Again, can you kind of reiterate which which people do you think can do okay with more carbohydrate and other people that it's like, you know what, you probably can't. 
Yeah. So um, that's a really interesting point, and it's a very, very gray area. And I, I do it based on kind of, I don't know, I take a good history from people. Um, and before they come into my office, you know, I do a good pre-screen form. I, I find out um, what their living situation is like, who cooks, who, um, how many how many kids they've got, if they've got kids, what sort of exercise they do, what sort of work they do, what sort of life they have, what's, what they eat, how, how often they have takeaways, how often they have coffee, da, 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 you know. Um, and I, I find out a lot about them and then look at their medical history and look at what their goals are. And before before I see them, my, my business is online now. Um, before I see them, I I've got a lot of information already about them, and then a further sort of twenty minute conversation gets me to that place that that I, I want to be at. I do want to say that I have some clients that I've I've only worked out over time need to be strict, need to be in that ketogenic space because they are truly addicted to sugar. Now, sugar addiction is a thing, right? Um, the same as, uh, you know, an, an alcoholic can't have a drink on a Tuesday night and a Saturday night. They just cannot drink. They need to abstain. And people who um, have have a proper sugar addiction can't have one biscuit um, as a treat on a on a Friday night. So in in extreme levels of sugar addiction, some people can't even have um, so-called good quality carbohydrates. They can't even have you know some sweet potato or, or, or something because that will that will you know send them down that that sort of spiral. Um, into wanting more carbohydrate and, and eating more carbohydrate and causing harm. So it it does depend a lot on personality. Working out if you've got if you're working if you're dealing with a, a moderator or you've got that kind of black and and white personality. And sometimes, well, you can't get that typically on the first session. Sometimes you get that with a lot of going moderately low carb and just totally failing the whole time and actually going, you know what, you, you actually need to be strict. And then they move to a more stricter ketogenic space, and it works for them. They still have to be diligent. So, so that's that's the one. That's the one thing. I think if you've got, if you've got someone who's got, um, you know, got um, a spouse and some kids and um, and a big social life. Hopefully, you know, most people <laughs> uh, have, have got lives. And um, let's say they are um, they they have type two diabetes and They've got, say, 10, 15, 20 kilos to lose. Um, and they go for holidays every now and again, um, like, you know, a lot of people do. I would put them in, and, and, of course, talking about what they've done before and what's worked for them and what hasn't worked for them because that really um, that really leads to, like, this has worked for you, this hasn't worked for you before. That leads to what might work now. Um, and I think for that typical, for, for that maybe middle-aged housewife with a family or, you know, not necessarily housewife, but someone who's working or whatever, um, that 50 to 80, um, 50 to 75 might be a nice place. And I always say, look, on some days, I get, I get people to, to, track, to monitor their food intake on, a, on an app so they can, um, they can really get a good handle and take control and get empowered. And I say, well, if you if you sometimes go lower, if you're having a day where you can where you do 20 grams, um, that's absolutely fine. But that's not the prescription. You don't have to do that any uh, you know every day. If you want to do a little bit of intermittent fasting, absolutely include that in. That will bring your overall carb down. So that that could be a space that I work in with, with, with that type of client. Um, I had a client the other day who's a CrossFitter, um, and interestingly, I worked with her. She's um, yeah, I worked with her several years ago, and she got into ketogenic space. Um, she was just flying. She was amazing. Um, and then I haven't had contact with her for a long time, and she made contact again. She said she, she just got back into CrossFit, and she she went to see someone who who she wanted to build muscle mass. She went to see someone who put her on a high carb diet, and she said she just feels terrible she feels absolutely she feels inflamed she feels puffy she feels heavy so um so what we've done is we've gone back to the ketogenic space just to kind of reset 
And then for her, because she's doing something like CrossFit, which really requires you to tap into that sort of glycolytic energy systems a little bit more, we wouldn't keep her in the ketogenic space. You'd bring her into a space where she's maybe going, some days she's on 30 or 40 grams of carbs, 50 grams of carbs. Other days she might be up to, say, 100 or even 120. So it's um, for for um, highly active individuals, it's – it's moving towards periodizing the carbohydrates to to the session. So if you're doing a very you know a, a heavy session, an important session, you might want to um, include a bit more carbohydrate for nutritional support around that session. And then other days where you're doing lighter sessions, you you might not. And the disconcerting thing for a lot of people about that is that there's no textbook guideline about this. Um, it's about sort of feeling your way. It's like, oh, well, should I put the carbohydrate? after my training or before my training it's like well I don't know let's see put it after your training see how you go or put it before let's see how you go it's very much trial and error and for some people that's disconcerting I quite like the whole trial and error because it takes away the one size fits all and you know you you're a problem solver and you're trying to find the best outcome so again just to uh, come back to your question um someone who's who's trying to be live a healthy lifestyle got a family trying to achieve some goals got a busy life you might you might put them in the 50 to 80 50 to 100 maybe yeah um if you've got someone who's who's eating 500 grams of carbohydrate then maybe getting them closer to 100 to 120 might be a good starting point That's for great. someone who's a crossfitter or or someone who needs that glycolytic you might you might sort of switch between keto and a slightly higher carb depending on you know phases of training yeah um Wow. Yeah. That is really well explained. I absolutely love that. I think that makes, you know, this diet, this way of eating very approachable for lots of different people. And I love that you acknowledge all of those other things that is not just, you know, grams or the weight of something or the calories of something. Like you don't eat calories of something or grams of protein. You have mm. food, you have meals, you, you mm. have a family. How, who's preparing your meals? Does, does little Johnny like what you make? Like there's so many other yeah. things that go into it that need to be considered. And I'm so glad that you, you, you take all those into consideration. I think that's really helpful for the listeners listener to realize that you can adjust this. It doesn't have to be the same, whatever diet that somebody's putting up on Instagram, just because they do it doesn't mean that low carbohydrate can't be accessible and can't work for you. Yeah. And certain foods that might trigger some people might not trigger you and you can be okay with that. And everybody is, is invited and everybody can stand to benefit from whatever level. And, and you're right. Like the guess and check thing, I think is wonderful. It's, it's frustrating in the world of nutrition to feel like we never have the thing, you know, and we're For always sure. adjusting, but you're right. It does make it fun. It does make it an interesting case in problem solving. So I really love that approach. Yeah. And there's also a wide variety of uh, places where people can access information. Literally some people can read a book, apply it, and that'll be them forever. Other people need to gather a whole lot more information. Other people um, need to have their, you know, support teams around them. Other people need to go to a, a, a registered dietitian or nutritionist. Some people might go, well, I, I'm happy, I've got a good report with my personal trainer. I'm going to work with him or her. Um, so, it, you know, I, I've got a client that that she works with me. She works with a naturopath. She works with a psychologist. She's got a whole team around her um, to to navigate through her issues. And um, it, it's really fabulous, that sort of multidisciplinary team. Every person has a different role to play. And as long as the, you know, the client is or the patient is at the center of everyone's, um, you know, thought patterns, then it, it can absolutely work. Yeah, I love that. That's a really great approach. If you have the means and the resources to build a team around you, that's fantastic. I love it. Um, like we said earlier, you, you know, what the fat is really approachable. It makes things easy. It makes things look delicious. Your recipe book looks amazing. Just seeing the avocado on the cover, like uh, that looks really good. Uh, um, but I do want to make sure we talk about um, one of your more latest books, What the Face. Can you tell us a little about some of the things you learned about eating properly and, and things like skin health? Yeah, I mean, this was an interesting book because it really tied together um, what we had done before. So, you know, whole food, um, good quality carbohydrates, good quality protein, healthy fats. Um, and we linked it to um, to, to skin health. And it, the biggest learning curve for, for doing that book was looking at the um, the relationship the relationship between the gut, the brain, and the skin. And you can't 
you can't separate it um, at all. And it, it's funny when people basically clean up their diet towards low carb whole, whole food, um, they they get lots of benefits. They get improvements in their gut health. They, they suddenly they, they, if they've got skin issues, their skin issues tend to clear up. Um, and they get this kind of cognitive enhancement. They get they lose their brain fog. So all of the all of the systems in the body are um, are totally totally connected. Um, so we 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 took this approach and and applied it um, in in the context of of skin. We also went into um, you know cosmetics, what cosmetics you you should and shouldn't use on your face, and what's the sort of basic regime you can do. Um, we looked at the sort of skin microbiome. Um, we looked at all sorts of things. Um, and, yeah, it, and there was a very um, big focus on, on the types of fats and, and, um, and there, was a, there was a session on, um, sorry, there was a section on, on collagen and, and looking at the science behind some of these supplements, whether they work, whether they don't work. So there was lots of learning there, lots of learning, absolutely. Yeah, that's so interesting. I don't think a lot of people make that connection. Uh, not just skin, gut, brain connection, which is so strong. How I don't know how many people I've worked with that they all improve together when somebody starts eating right. But but the connection between the skin and you know the food that they're eating. What are some of the the most beneficial foods that people can be eating for skin health? Um, you know, I, I think um, I think it's the, the the template of that that whole food. So looking at good quality proteins. I mean, you, you've got you look at the, the the building blocks of the skin. You've got your um, collagen, um, elastin. You, you you know, you've got your pro your, your three kind of sister proteins there um, that are really really important for um, for for building optimal skin health. So good quality protein and enough protein. And I think. Like I said earlier, protein doesn't really get um, it doesn't it doesn't get the press it, sh it should do. Um, I think in the old days we were so focused on oh you know bodybuilders eat too much protein and too much protein is so you know so bad for the system, bad for the kidney, and bad for the whatever. Um, and we've gone the other way, you know, um, and particularly in the beginning with the whole ketogenic diet, you need to keep your protein intake low, but that. That has moved really, um, and and now we're seeing a push towards optimal protein. Uh, protein has got um, got that added benefit of improving satiety. Um, so good quality protein sources are really important for bu building healthy skin, but also the the fats, particularly the omega three fats. Um, so we talk a lot about the omega three omega six ratio, and um, something to avoid being seed oils uh, because they've got high omega-6 and you've got, you know, you, there's some issues there with, with, with the ratio, but also they're kind of factory manufactured fats. So again, um, focusing on, um, you know, animal sources, but also, you know, plants, plant sources uh, as well of, of omega-3 fats. And yeah, so, so the fat and the protein were two major focuses, but also, um, the, the micronutrients as well, and this might be a bit kind of uh, antagonistic for the, the carnival folk, but we do go into the importance of um, certain certain nutrients like, you know, biotin um, and, and some of the other kind of lesser well-known um, micronutrients and how important they are for, for optimal skin health and, and gut health. Wow. No, that's great. You are the second person we've interviewed this week um, that is an expert in skin health and has told us that protein is the most important thing and make sure you're getting adequate mm. protein. Somebody sent me an article. <laughs> so ridiculous. Somebody sent me an article this week and said, hey, what do you think about this? And it was, it, it was called something like the seven signs that you're eating too much protein. And there were all like these ridiculous symptoms that I've never heard of and was recommending for most adults they need to take in about I, th I think it's at like 53 grams of protein per day and to like sub out things like you know get the animal fats out get the animal um, protein out make sure you're eating plenty of soy it's like oh my goodness like I cannot believe what I'm reading out there as far as protein yeah, goes shocking. that that, yeah. that message has to die <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> and I think, you know, that whole, um, the RDI or the RDA of 0 0.8 grams per kilogram body weight. So if you're weighing, you know, you, you know, if you're weighing, uh, 
don't know, 60 kilos, that's sort of 50 odd grams of protein. I mean, I get that in my breakfast meal. Absolutely. <laughs> um, and I think, I, I think that, um, it, that, that that is way too low. And, you know, you only have to look at the uh, powerlifting uh, literature and the bodybuilding, well, not so much the bodybuilding, but um, the, the, the literature that, that looks at strength training individuals where they've done those studies um, and they've got the protein up to um, either 4.4, I think even 5.4 wow. grams of protein per kilogram. So, you know, someone who's 80 or 90 kilos, multiply that by 5.4. That's a lot of protein. Yeah. And I'm not saying that's, amount, that's an amount that I would um, tell people to eat, but the literature has looked at um, – a range of health markers and have found that there is no insult um, to any of these markers with such high levels of protein. So it is a real myth. And I think there, there is some issues if you are, if you do have, um, you know, you've got pre-existing um, issues with your, with your kidneys, you might think a, a little bit um you know, harder about it, you might get some some help to not go that high. Um, but I, th I think in the general population, we need to not be scared of going up to two grams of um, two grams of protein per kilogram body weight. Because also there's a discrepancy of the weight that you are now versus the weight that you want to be if you want to lose excess body fat. So I know in, in uh, you know, in your neck of the woods, you, you tend to do it um, – per pound of lean body mass yeah. well you have you have to know what your lean body mass is and you know the average individual doesn't so yeah. um but anyway bring, bringing it back i do think that um that protein needs to be um needs to be on on the front stage a little bit more yeah agreed thank you so much we just always love reiterating that message i, I replied to this person like this is a great way to make sure that you're going to waste muscle and have bone issues and end up in a nursing home at age 65 70 like that that's where yeah. you're heading if you're eating that kind of thing wow well this yeah, conversation has been absolutely amazing i've really enjoyed learning from you uh dr karen zinn where can people go to connect with you and your work well, I guess I'm on the usual social media channels apart from Instagram because I'm sort of old. <laughs> um, uh, Facebook, so um, Karen's in, um, well, uh, my website is karenzin.com and then Facebook, I'm Karen's in Dietitian. Uh, Twitter is at Karenzin. My dog has an Instagram page, but I do not, so don't look for me there. <laughs> That's hilarious. Um, yeah, and then um, I've got my sort of academic, my AUT, um, Karen's an AUT academic. You can just Google if you were interested in, you know, what my publications are and anything like that. Yeah, um, So there, there are a range of places, yeah. Great. We will link to all of that in the show notes. I sometimes halfway joke that, like, we're we're just about ready to hire, like, a 13-year-old girl to run our social media accounts. <laughs> like, it's so overwhelming, and I, I do it so poorly. Um, it, it, Yeah, it's really tough. That may have been the way to go is just not even mess, mess with Instagram or or TikTok or anything like that. Just stick stick with Facebook where all the rest oh, of us old yeah. people are. <laughs> I know, because it's just like another thing, right? Another thing. It's like, no. Yeah, totally, totally. Well, this is amazing. Again, Dr. Karen Zinn, thank you so very much for sharing your time and your learnings with us. We're so grateful that you found this way of life and that you're sharing it with others in a way that's very simple to understand. And, and thank you so much for taking the time to be on our show today. We really appreciate you. Thank you for having me. It's been great to, great to be here chatting with you. Yeah, such an honor. And this has been another episode of Balanced Body Radio. As always, thank you so very much for listening to and supporting Boundless Body Radio. It has been such a joy to go on this journey now that it's been two years of doing these episodes and all the amazing conversations that we've had with thought leaders and to be able to share this message around the world with literally hundreds of thousands of people has been so amazing. If you haven't already, please go over to Apple, leave us a rating and review as it's the best way for the show to continue to grow and touch more lives of people out there. I am so excited to announce 
that we are launching the Boundless Body Radio Premium Podcast. This is something that I have been working really hard at for a very long time and something I am very proud of. Now that we have done over 300 episodes, our content can be a little bit overwhelming if you really want to learn about one particular topic and really zero in on that topic. So that is exactly what I have done. I have gone through all of our episodes, taken the very best clips all about one particular topic and put them into long form very informative and concise episodes called the Boundless Body Radio Premium Podcast. That can be found on our brand new Patreon page, which I'm really excited to announce as we have all kinds of different offers there and different tiers. We're including early releases of our show, Boundless Body Radio. We typically keep about 15 to 20 episodes scheduled at any given time. So we have options there where you can have early access to those. We're also offering group and one-on-one coaching and also access to these premium podcast episodes, the Balanced Body Radio Premium Podcast. We have three that are launching right now, and I will be making a new one every other week. And we believe that we are providing these for a very, very high value. So please check us out on Patreon, check the link in the notes to be able to get there. And thank you as always for listening to Boundless Body Radio.